What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I wanted to talk about this politician I think we can both get behind, and his name is Duke Rick, and he's from this town in Cormorant, Minnesota. And Duke was elected mayor in a landslide because the town doesn't want to be represented by anyone who's super political. And this is about the point I should tell you that Duke Rick is actually a dog. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) In fact, he's the first dog mayor of Cormorant, and he's this big, beautiful, great Pyrenees. You know, I'm really curious about Duke's agenda, but I have to ask, like, what does he do as mayor? I mean, as you'd guess, it's mostly ceremonial. There's this deputy who seems to do most of the real work, but uh, Duke can often be found sitting in a bar where people feed him steak and occasionally buy him swigs of beer. (laughs) This is what it says (laughs) online. He also enjoys hanging out on the streets where he's constantly approached by his adoring fans. And, of course, he attends all the city council meetings, but he's just this great ambassador for the town. Wow. And so does he have any competition or what? He's actually won three elections in a row now, and they were all these massive landslides. But, uh, you know, there actually was one other candidate on the ballot. It's his girlfriend, Lassie. So (laughs) she only got a few votes in the last uh, election, but maybe she'll take over when he's tired running for office and be sort of the town's first female dog mayor. Wow. uh, Hearing about Duke made me wonder, what are some other important, famous firsts in doggy history? And that's what today's episode is all about. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, sitting with a, is that a, it's a Jack, Jack Russell, Russell Terrier? Yeah. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, on his lap, right there. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I do wish that all of our listeners could see this because it is it's really a pretty cute. adorable scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this little guy keeps putting his paws up on the soundboard, and he's got this 
I, I know it sounds weird to say this, but like this really focused look, it, it seems like he actually <laughs> knows what he's doing. So I laughed when Tristan told me he wanted to train the first dog to record a podcast, but I think they might pull it off, which is, I guess, all the more impressive when you find out that they just met yesterday. Oh, this is not even Tristan's dog? No, it's kind of a business partnership, apparently. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, all right. well, we do have a ton of heartwarming stories to share on today's show, which is all about famous first for dogs. Now, you know, we humans tend to hog the spotlight when it comes to making history, which I guess is no surprise since we're the ones writing it all down. But for today, we thought we'd switch things up a little bit and give man's best friend a chance to finally step out of the shadows and really take their bow. So, you know, from the first dog to catch a Frisbee to the first dog to drive a car, we're going to dig into the stories of some of history's most remarkable canines. That's right. And since our recent President's episode is still fresh on my mind, I thought we could start with the very first dogs to hold the title of first dog. Now, just about every U.S. president has had a pet of some sort, but dogs have always been the most popular by far. In fact, 68% of our presidents have owned a dog while in office, and our very first president was no exception. George Washington was a huge dog lover. He owned 50 different dogs during his lifetime, including 17 who kept him company during his two terms. And since Washington was an avid hunter. Most of those dogs were American foxhounds, a breed he's actually credited with founding. 17 dogs. I and mean, it makes you wonder, like, whether he even bothered naming these dogs. And he did. So we all know Washington was a great president, but he was an even better dog namer. So <laughs> I'm going to list out some of these names. Uh, he called them Taster, Drunkard, Tipsy, Tippler. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sensing a bit of a pattern here. So, so <laughs> I, I feel like either Washington was a lush or maybe the dogs were. Yeah, but there were 17 of them. So, you know, he couldn't keep up this drinking language forever. So some of other names included uh, Mopsy, Forrester, Captain, Rover, Vulcan, <laughs> makes him an early Trekkie, I guess, and, uh, yeah. and even Sweet Lips. Sweet Lips, okay. <laughs> well, all right, so those were the first, first dogs, but they actually weren't the first ones to live in the White House, right? Like, I know Washington picked the spot where the White House would be built, but he never actually got to live there. Absolutely true. That that particular honor went to these two mixed-breed pups that moved in with uh, John Adams and his wife, Abigail. And while the dogs might have lacked the pedigree of Washington's hounds, they also had some pretty colorful names. They were known as Juno and Satan. <laughs> kind of weird to think that Satan was like napping at the White House in the earliest years. But um, uh -huh. all right, so we've covered the first, first dogs. But what about the first dogs, period? Like first dogs overall? So uh, how do you even figure that out? Well, there's definitely a lot of disagreement on the specifics of this, but it is worth looking at what the, the history books mainly say. So some say prehistoric humans began domesticating wolves around 10 or maybe 15,000 years ago. And then you got others who maintain it was even longer ago, like maybe 30 or 40,000 years ago. And of course, the region where this took place is just as much in question. You know, you've got Europe, you've got the Middle East, you've got East Asia being, you know, part of some of the most popular theories. And actually, they aren't even sure if it was humans who tamed these wolves and bred them into the, you know, kind of the good pups that we know today. Instead, some researchers think that wolves domesticated themselves, which might sound weird. But yeah. if you think about it, you know, this could have happened by them just scavenging the kills left by human hunters or by hanging around the campfire until someone literally threw out a bone. I mean, that's crazy to think about, but I'm guessing there's no one dog we can hand the title to, right, for first dog ever. 
Well, I mean, I think you're right. Not in, not in terms of like first dog in general, but there is a pup that I want to nominate for the title of first pet dog. So in 1914, there were some workers that uncovered a grave in Germany, and that grave contained the ancient remains of a man, a woman, and a little dog. And these remains actually date back to the Paleolithic era. So we're talking maybe like 14,000 years ago. And so that makes them the oldest known grave where humans and dogs were buried together. Okay, so this is kind of splitting hairs on the definition of pet, but I'm pretty sure our ancestors only kept dogs for utility, right? Like, like they weren't carrying them around in purses as some sort of accessory. <laughs> and right. uh, I, I'm guessing it was more of like a mutually beneficial work relationship. Well, I mean, that's definitely been the thinking in the past. But looking at this grave in Germany, it actually suggests that there might have been more to it than than just practicality. Actually, just this year, there were researchers that were looking at this, and they brought in this veterinarian to come in and examine the remains. And what they found was that this dog had had problems with its teeth, and, and from that, they were able to conclude that the puppy actually died from canine distemper virus, which... You know, this this only allowed him to live until about 10 weeks after he had contracted the disease. So, I mean, I guess that's sad, but what, what, what does that prove? Well, according to that research team, there's actually no way the dog could have survived even that long with such a life-threatening illness unless it was really, really cared for by these humans. Huh. And so this is actually how Nat Geo sums up the team's findings. They said... This puppy represents the earliest known evidence of dogs being regarded and treated as pets. The care it received while it was ill and of no use to people appears to have been driven by compassion or empathy. In other words, an emotional bond. That is pretty sweet, actually. Like, and it isn't something I'd expect to say after hearing about like a 14,000-year-old dead puppy, but uh, <laughs> it does make you feel for it. And th there's actually another archaeological find I, I want to talk about, and that's the first dogs to have ever had their image preserved, or the first dog to be the subject of art, however you want to put it. Oh, so what do you mean, like in cave paintings or something? So it's actually cave carvings, and I, I didn't realize these were a thing, but uh, they were found last year at two different sites in Saudi Arabia, and they're thought to be the oldest depictions of dogs on record. They date back eight or maybe even 9,000 years. And what's wild about this is that it would mean that humans were training and controlling dogs even before we started farming. All right, so I guess it's my turn to, to play devil's advocate here because, I mean— what makes you so sure that these carvings actually show domesticated dogs? I mean, like they could have just been wild dogs that were in the area or honestly, maybe even not dogs. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like the dogs in the carvings, they're actually on leashes. And hmm. the images show human hunters with packs of dogs tethered to their waist, leaving their hands free to shoot arrows at prey. And, and we know these are dogs because they have the characteristics of dog breeds found in the region today. That means like short snouts, pricked ears, curly tails. And if that wasn't enough proof, the same series of carvings also depict wolves, hyenas, lions, and horses. And they look completely different from these leashed dogs. Wow. All right. Well, I guess that's uh, pretty good evidence. But <laughs> I'm going to give that one to you. You know, and, and, unless there are older carvings that come to light at some point, I, I feel like you're probably right that these were the first dogs to have their their likenesses preserved. I guess. Well, I mean, there's another first here. These hunting scenes are also the earliest known evidence of dog leashes. So technically, hmm. they might be the first dogs to ever wear leashes as well. I mean, that seems like a little bit of a stretch to use that one as like a big first. But I guess that is. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> is pretty interesting, but you may be just showing off a little bit. All right. Well, well, speaking of ruins, there's another pooch in line with that theme, and that's the world's first archaeology dog. If you're going to stretch one, I'm going to stretch one. So I know what archaeology digs are, but what are archaeology <laughs> dogs? Are, are they for like hunting pottery? Well, actually, that could be an application down the line. But for now, an archaeology dog is one that can locate human bones that are hundreds of years old. And the first dog to be trained to do this is this Australian black lab mix, and her name is Migaloo. And the way <laughs> they came about this is that her trainer, a guy named Gary Jackson, he was trying to think of a new application for dogs' amazing sense of smell. And so, you know, keep in mind, dogs have somewhere around 200 million more olfactory receptors than we do. So scientists have been using them as field assistants for years now. So I'd actually read a little bit about conservation dogs, which are these dogs trained to track all sorts of tough-to-spot wild species. And they track everything from, like, tiny toads, lizards— Invasive plants, even gorillas, which can be people shy, apparently. But uh, some marine biologists, and this is the craziest one of them all, have even started using dogs to track whales by the scent of their droppings. Isn't that amazing? It's a, yeah, it's amazing they could even pick up on that. Yeah. But um, I'll go back to, to Migaloo just for a second because you know, the closest thing to what she does would probably be like – I don't like those cadaver dogs that law enforcement use to, to find those decomposing bodies. Uh -huh. but. You know, of course, that doesn't work for archaeology because the remains you're dealing with, they're long past that decomposition stage. So it's it's not that that's what they're smelling out. Like, they're, they're not trained to sniff out rot. They're actually trained to smell human bones. So they just gave her a bunch of old bones to smell and were like, I don't know, like, now go find more like this? That, that is exactly what they say. That is the training manual word for word, <laughs> actually. Well, well, what they did was they, they got permission from these aboriginal tribal elders to train, you know, this dog to smell these ancestral bones. And, and they did this with this museum collection. And I actually found this interview where he goes into detail about how this works. So here's what he says. We recreated an aboriginal graveyard and also scattered some animal bones there. What we saw was that the dog was able to find a buried bone from about 10 feet away, even if it's as small as a fingernail. We would just take a cotton ball and touch the bone and then touch that to the rock, and she could still find the smell. Wow. Now, the big test was at an Aboriginal burial ground in South Australia where a 600-year-old grave had been found a few years ago. We were given about an acre to search. Museum officials and tribal elders were there, and they knew where the graves were, but not us. Within two minutes, Migaloo was circling this one spot, and it was exactly where the dog was, and it was a 600-year-old grave. I mean, that's stunning. It, it really is fascinating that, yeah. that dogs can do that. And you can almost think, like, how much easier it would be to get a gravesite protected from development if you had a dog that could show you where the bones were in just, I don't know, like a few minutes? It's pretty yeah. remarkable, the applications. And also, like, if she can find bones that easily, then pottery doesn't feel that far away or, or even things like dinosaur bones or other kinds of fossils, right? Definitely. I mean, I think all of those are, are possibilities. And, you know, there's also the chance this technique could be used to crack cold cases that, you know, police are still dealing huh. with where maybe there was this, you know, thought to be a body buried in a certain area, but they were never able to find it. But, you know, whatever benefits we reap from this, we will all owe it to Migaloo for uh, for helping us get started with this type of work. The world's first archaeology dog. <laughs> well, we still have a bunch of dogs to talk about, including seeing eye dogs. But before we get to those, let's take a quick break. 
Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the famous first of a few good dogs. All right, Mango, so we talked about Migaloo, who was the Australian black lab that's been helping archaeologists dig in all the right places. But I want to get back to the basics and, and maybe talk about the kind of service or assistance dog that most of us know best, and that's, of course, guide dogs. You know, so for a long time now, these dogs have been helping blind and visually impaired people navigate the world much more independently than they would be otherwise. And So I want to talk a little bit about the history of their service. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me is that it really is hard to pinpoint when the first ever guide dog came. Like you said, it's been going on for such a long time. And in fact, the earliest evidence of dogs guiding the blind dates all the way back to the first century A.D. And there's this fresco in the ruins of this Roman town, and it actually depicts a blind man being led by his dog. So you could say that's the first guide dog, but the truth is that assumes that the artist based it on a real-life subject, and and that's kind of hard to verify. Well, I mean, there is one thing that we can say, and that it, it wasn't until the 1800s that trained guide dogs became, you know, such an important part of the medical establishment. I was looking at this article on history.com, and, and here's how they put it. 
The earliest systemic instruction of guide dogs took place at a Paris hospital for the blind. Within a few decades, the practice had spread to Austria, where a blind man named Josef Reisinger, he trained a Spitz and later a Poodle so well that people actually began to suspect he was faking his disability. Then in the 1800s, another Austrian by the name of Johann Wilhelm Klein founded the Institute for Training of the Blind in Vienna. As a teacher there, his dogs of choice were Poodles and Shepherds, and while you don't see too many guide Poodles today, German Shepherds are still a common choice for training. So I, I'm curious, though, like, do you know when guide dogs first became a thing in the U.S.? Because I, I feel like they aren't really mentioned in the early American history, you know, in, in the colonies or whatever. Yeah, there was a little bit of this that I saw in doing some reading for this episode where you see accounts from the mid-1800s. And these were dogs that were helping guide the blind. But it really wasn't until the late 1920s that you started to see this practice gaining ground on, you know, kind of on this side of the Atlantic. But that change was largely thanks to a wealthy American woman named Dorothy Harrison Eustace, as well as a blind 19-year-old from Tennessee, and his name was Morris Frank. So we're talking about 1927 here, when Eustace wrote an article for the Saturday Evening Post, and it was about her recent trip to a dog training clinic in Germany. And this is where doctors had been training guide dogs for use both by veterans and civilians, and she herself had been living in Switzerland at the time, and She was breeding and training these police dogs for the Swiss Army, but she'd never seen anything like this new German method for training dogs to act as guides for the blind. And so in her article, she was praising this technique as as a way for the visually impaired to, as she says, once more take up their normal lives. So where does this guy from Tennessee come in? So that's Morris Frank, and he hears about the article, immediately writes a letter to Eustace asking her to, quote, train me and I will bring back my dog and show people here how a blind man can be absolutely on his own. So you fast forward to the next year, and Frank spends some time with her in Switzerland and returns home with his very own guide dog. And this was, of course, a German shepherd that he had named Buddy. And The press in the States goes crazy about this story, and so it's the first case of a properly trained guide dog in the U.S. And reporters are asking Frank, you know, how having a guide has improved his life, and he decides to give them some pretty compelling proof and and shows them that with the help of Buddy, he can navigate across one of New York's most hazardous thoroughfares. This was a street known by locals as Death Avenue. (laughs) This seems a pretty bo- seems like there could be other ways you might test this, but fortunately, when he did it, they made it across without a scratch. And just a year after that, Frank and Eustace founded the first American guide dog school, and they called it the Seeing Eye, and it's actually still going strong today. I mean, it's amazing to think about how relatively recent that was. I mean, you look at all the roles assistance dogs fill today, and it's not just helping people with vision loss, but also hearing impairments, epilepsy, autism, PTSD. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, when you lay it all out there, it it, it is actually pretty amazing the number of different ways dogs have been able to help people just over the past century or so. Yeah, I mean, they're getting the title of man's best friend for a reason. And That's true. <laughs> actually, I've got a great example of this. It's this uh, Yorkshire Terrier named Smokey. And during World War II, she became the world's first therapy dog. So this goes back to this American soldier named Bill Wynn, who adopted her after finding her in this abandoned foxhole in New Guinea. This is in 1944. So Smokey's first act of service was to save the lives of Wynn and his entire squadron. Uh, Apparently, the soldiers needed to string this telephone wire through a 70-foot pipe underground so that these three different campsites could communicate with one another. 
And the problem was that the pipe was only eight inches wide, so of course it was impossible for a human to crawl through it. And instead, dozens of men had to spend days digging a trench to get the wires underground, and all the while they were leaving themselves exposed to enemy attack. Or at least that was the plan, and that's how it would have gone had it not been for Smokey. So she was this scrawny dog, weighing about four pounds, standing just seven inches tall, and she could actually fit into the pipe with ease. So with a little bit of luck, and a little bit of patience, Wynne was able to tie the wire to Smokey and coax her through the pipe from above ground. And, of course, the little pup got the job done. She was credited with saving the lives of some, I think it's 250 men and also 40 planes that day. Oh, wow. I mean, that is pretty incredible story. But I'm curious, like, if, if Smokey was such a cool hand on the battlefield, how did that transition happen to becoming a dog doing therapy type work. So pretty soon after Wynn adopted her, he came down with dengue fever, which is horrible, obviously, and he was sent to this army hospital. And a couple days later, his friends came by, his fellow soldiers, and they brought Smokey to visit him. And the nurses were just in love with this little dog. Like, you know, she's brave, she's tiny, she's got a big personality. And so not only did they cuddle her, but they took her around to all the other wounded soldiers. And, uh... You know, Wynne, when he was there, saw how Smokey really changed the mood in these rooms. These were these depressed and injured soldiers who took turns holding her and petting her, and it completely changed their outlook. So once Wynne was well enough to leave, he started taking Smokey around to visit other wounded soldiers. He even taught Smokey some pretty impressive tricks to keep them entertained while he was there. He taught her how to walk a tightrope, how to ride this handmade scooter, and even how to spell her own name. Wow, those are all impressive things. Although I'm curious, like, what do you mean spell her own name? I guess he'd call out the letters of her name one by one, and she would go and pick out these big cutouts of the letters with her mouth. So uh, I guess she was showing off in that way. That's pretty great. I mean, even though I can do that part about the spelling <laughs> of the name, but uh, but Smokey does sound like a pretty wonderful dog. <laughs> Definitely. And, and as word of her impact spread, you know, pretty soon, all these other owners of dogs were bringing their dogs around as therapy dogs to recuperating soldiers. In fact, by 1947, American civilians had donated around 700 dogs to military hospitals around the country. I saw that stand and just floored by it. Hmm. You know, and, and Wynn and Smokey had a happy ending, too. After the war, they kept right on touring hospitals, right up until Smokey retired at the age of 12 in 1955. And then she led a quieter, still peaceful life for two more years after that. All right, well, for this last segment, I feel like we should focus on a few dogs whose achievements were a little bit more down to earth. But before we do that, let's take one more quick break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. All right, well, so let's talk about some dogs with claims to fame that won't make us second-guess our own life choices. You know, pups who were the first to do run-of-the-mill classic dog-type stuff. <laughs> All right, well, I've got one. So why don't we talk about the first dog to win Best in Show, which, you know, should make us feel okay because it's not really threatening to us human types. <laughs> and so surprisingly, this is actually something I don't think we covered when we did that episode on how to game a dog, dog show. show. I don't know how we left this one off, but... You know, as you might remember, Westminster Kennel Club held its first dog show way back in 1877. But strangely, the event didn't include a best-in-show until about 40 years later in 1907. And the first dog to win the award was this smooth-coated fox terrier named Warren Remedy. Such a great (laughs) name, but don't let the name fool you. Warren Remedy was actually a female dog. So what was it about Warren that won the judges over? I mean, her looks, Mango, as one reporter (laughs) wrote for the New York Tribune, quote, Warren Remedy is practically true to type. She is tan marked with strong head, keen expression, good outline and grand ribs. Yeah, I feel like the grand ribs always do the trick. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely the mark of a champion for sure. And there's no doubt that that's exactly what Warren was. A three-time champion, in fact, because not only did she earn the first ever Best in Show award, she went on to win the title in the next two Westminster shows as well, which, of course, makes her the only three-time winner in the history of the competition. She is Westminster's most winningest dog. And, you know, we think about how political the show's gotten in the years since then. I feel like it's unlikely that Warren's ever going to have anybody, you know, take that crown from her. Good for her. And and speaking of dog shows, did you know that they're actually the reason that dog biscuits went mainstream back in the late 1800s? I did not. In, in fact, I, I don't think I've ever thought of dog biscuits going mainstream, as you said. <laughs> you never heard of, like, putting your biscuits in beta? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. So the first dog biscuits were invented in 1860 by this electrician named James Spratt. And prior to that, nobody had really thought of a food specifically for dogs. People just fed dogs like the scraps and and whatever was left over from their own meals. And that all changed thanks to Spratt. He created these uh, meat fibrine dog cakes. That's what his product was called. (laughs) And uh, there was something he came up with after noticing the way dogs gobbled up hardtack, which is that stuff that sailors used to take with them. It supposedly tastes horrible. But uh, word of Spratt's new product spread. And, And by 1895, the New York Times was actually heralding it as the, quote, principal food of dog shows. (laughs) <laughs> That's kind of a funny story. But, but So where, where are we going with this? Is this the first dog to eat a dog biscuit? Pretty close. So Spratt's biscuits actually had one shortcoming. Atlas Obscura says they were, quote, woefully square in shape. 
And <laughs> this is a big, you know, difference from all, all the bone-shaped biscuits our, our dogs get today. All right, so so I still don't know exactly where we're going. So are we talking about the first dog to ever eat a bone-shaped biscuit? <laughs> exactly. It's a big deal, and, and I feel like it should be celebrated. But this is how it happened. So sometime in 1907, an organic chemist and inventor named Carlton Ellis received a desperate plea for help from the local owner of a, a slaughterhouse. And the owner was looking for this profitable way to use all the waste milk his work produced. And he'd hoped Ellis could help him find one. So Ellis took on the task and likely inspired by Spratt's famous dog biscuits, he began experimenting with this biscuit of his own, one made from milk, malt, grain, and a few other ingredients. So he made a a milk bone. Yeah, but not quite yet. So at first, Ellis baked the biscuits into what he hoped would be this appealing round shape. But when he tested the biscuits with his own pup, the dog wanted nothing to do with them. So as a professional chemist, he was kind of baffled by this. Like, he'd worked on all these landmark products, including margarine, uh, polyester, paint remover. And so he figured he should have been able to mix up an appetizing treat. So rather than change the ingredients, he just changed the shape of the biscuits. And this is what he told Popular Science in 1937. Quote, I had some more biscuits baked from the same stock, but in the shape of a bone. And I found that my dog manifested a tremendous interest in the bone-shaped biscuit. (laughs) Which is pretty great. But like, why would the dog care what shape the biscuit was? So I have no idea. But after he'd hit upon this pleasing shape, Ellis partnered with this company that started mass producing biscuits for him, and, and they called him Milkbone Biscuits, which are famous now. Then he right. sold the brand in Nabisco. But right up until his death, Ellis couldn't quite put his finger on why his dog liked the bone-shaped biscuits so much. And he actually once told this interviewer that his dog had either simply liked the design better or else, quote, after shaping the biscuit in an effort to cater to his taste, he felt duty-bound to fool his master by simulating an interest in it. I'm sure that's exactly what it was. All right. Well, for this last one, I'm going to sort of bend the rules a little bit because honestly, I can't tell you who the first dog to catch a Frisbee was because it was about 20 years between the product's debut and the story that I wanted to share. But when it comes to the official sport of dog Frisbee, there's no question that the first and best to ever play was this pup named Ashley Whippet. So I, I think I read about this when we were doing the research for our Whammo episode. This is the dog with the awesome nickname, right? Oh, it's a terrific nickname. The nickname is the surest jaws on all four paws. paws. <laughs> and, uh, that was coined by a writer in Sports Illustrated. So, you know, it seems like it's got to be true. But we need to back up for just a minute to 1974. And this was when Ashley and his owner, Alex Stein, actually stormed the offices of Whammo. So Stein had witnessed firsthand how talented his dog was at catching Frisbee, and he wanted the toy company to bring Ashley on as maybe like a mascot or something. But unfortunately, Whammo was not interested at this point. So Stein was trying to figure out what else to do so that the world could see how talented his dog was. So he comes up with this idea to storm the field at Dodger Stadium when the teams are, you know, switching places between innings. And so the game was about to resume after the eighth inning, and Stein ran onto the field tossed a Frisbee 40 yards out. Ashley then jumps this three-foot wall with ease and snags this disc out of midair. And actually, because the details of this are, are pretty great, I do want to read this description. This was, you know, from our friend Jake Rosen from, from Mental Floss, and here's what Jake says. He says, With 50,000 people cheering in the stands and millions watching at home, Ashley and Stein effectively invented the phenomenon known as dog Frisbee. The animal seemed to linger in the air like Jordan off the rim. His massively muscled hind legs propelled him skyward. 
his body contorted like a salamander swimming upstream, jaws gripping the disc. The outfielder sat down on the grass and watched the nearly eight-minute performance. (laughs) Finally, Stein departed, jogging up the same set of stairs. Security was waiting near the top. They zip-tied his wrist and ushered him to a holding cell full of drunks and eight-track cassette thieves. (laughs) But that isn't the end of the story, right? No, it's definitely not. And things actually started to look up for Stein and Ashley almost immediately after this. In fact, even when they were still in the holding tank there at the stadium, the halftime coordinator for the L.A. Rams was there and he came to visit them. So he slipped his business card through the bars and invited the duo to appear (laughs) at their next home game. Of course, they decided to do this. And after that, they made two appearances on Merv Griffin and The Tonight Show they went on to perform at the White House, even during the Super Bowl. And, you know, of course, all this got Whammo to change their tune on Dog Frisbee. And not only did they pay that $250 fine Stein incurred for trespassing on the baseball field, but they also co-sponsored the first annual Fearless Fido Frisbee Fetching Fracas, which is just an amazing dog competition. <laughs> but uh, anyway, a year later, the World Frisbee Championships began hosting a dedicated canine division, and it's the still-running Ashley Whippet Invitational. So I, I like that story a lot. And I, I think now that we've made it to the end of the episode, it actually means that Tristan and his dog associate just made history. Well, not so fast, Manga. We've still got a fact off. And you know, anything can happen during that. So let, let's hold tight <laughs> just a little bit longer. All right, well, I'll kick this off with a story about the first dog to receive a rank in the American military. And I I love this story. So we're going back to World War I, and it was the 102nd Infantry's 26th Yankee Division. And they were in training at Yale. And there was this stray dog that just shows up and starts hanging around. And the soldiers eventually start taking a liking to this dog. So they nickname him Stubby, and they teach him a few tricks, including how to salute with his paw, just putting it over (laughs) his eye. And this would eventually come in handy. So when it was time to ship out to France, they somehow managed to smuggle Stubby with them. And as you might imagine, the commanding officers were not thrilled when they discovered Stubby later on. But before they have a chance to discipline anybody, of course, the pup just pulls up his paw and does the little salute stunt and... (laughs) They decide to let him stick around, I guess, as like a mascot for the group. But Uh it's actually pretty amazing because he was much more than a mascot. You know, they trained the dog to do so many different things. He learned to sniff out chemical agents and he would come back and warn the soldiers, you know, when he would sniff these things out. He learned how to help find wounded soldiers so the paramedics could get to them. But you think about everything that he did for them, it was because of all these efforts that 102nd Infantry actually promoted him to sergeant. <laughs> and so by the end of his service, Stubby had served in 17 battles over just an 18-month period. That's pretty incredible. So I've been reading all these stories about dogs, you know, saving and helping people. But I, I really like the story about how dogs are also getting involved with saving the lives of other animals. And this is in South Africa. You know, poaching has been such a problem there for years with things like elephant tusks or whatever. And and to combat this, there are now more than 200 enrollees in an anti-poaching and canine training academy. And these pups are going to be trained and then matched up with various national parks. And the idea is that if there's this poacher that's spotted, a ranger would strap one of these pups onto their chest, 
and then take a parachute on their back and then float down to the area as quickly as possible to stop the poacher. And the role of the dogs is to sniff out the criminals and and try to catch them. And it's still early on in the program, so it's not really in full effect, but it sounds pretty spectacular. That is pretty interesting. So I'd always wondered how Dalmatians got associated with firehouses and decided to look into this a little bit. And, and I was surprised to see that, you know, this one actually dates back much further than I would have thought. So we're going back to the early 1700s when Dalmatians were often used to run alongside the carriages of English aristocrats. And, you know, they tend to like running alongside horses anyway. But in doing this, they would protect the horses from other animals and keep them from getting spooked. And in fact, it, it even became kind of a status symbol to have even more Dalmatians around <laughs> your carriage. So, you know, over time, this carried over to accompanying the horse-drawn wagons that would transport the firefighters. And again, in doing this, they would help protect the horses and kind of keep them calm as they were approaching the fire because horses are often afraid of fire and Dalmatians tend not to be as afraid of anything for that matter. And so, you know, the pups would stay back when they were off to fight the fire and they would guard the wagon to make sure nobody stole equipment or anything else on the wagon, including the horses. It's so funny. I've, I've always just kind of accepted that they're the mascot of these uh, right. firehouses, but it's great to hear the uh, the backstory. Yeah. So we've been reading a lot about self-driving cars in recent years, but... One thing I hadn't read about was a dog-driven car, and uh, this is from an animal shelter in New Zealand that came up with this idea to show how smart their dogs were by training two of their pups, and the dogs' names are Porter and Monty, and they taught them to drive a Mini Cooper, specifically a a Mini Countryman that was specially outfitted for them. So the dogs learned to start the engines, then use the gas and brakes and also steer, and they actually became celebrities when one of their test drives was aired on TV in New Zealand. Wow. Well, that's definitely amusing and impressive, but I have to say I'm, I'm going to one-up you on this one because while it is impressive to think of a dog driving a car, I feel like it's even more impressive to teach a dog how to pilot a plane. Maybe a little bit scary, but also impressive <laughs> at the same time. And, and I don't know what it is about New Zealand training dogs to drive stuff, but this actually comes from New Zealand as well. So there's an animal trainer and a zoologist named Mark Vett, And he taught this group of dogs to fly. And we're not just talking a few days of training. So for some reason, this went on for months. I actually have no idea why they put this much into training dogs to fly planes. But they were using an (laughs) indoor flight simulator. And in order to teach them how to pilot the plane, they'd use these different colored light signals. So they would use blue to indicate they should go left. They would use red for right. And white just meant to keep going straight. And... I guess for the heck of it, they even taught them to do a figure eight, which just sounds terrifying to try to be in a plane where a dog is doing a figure eight. But, you know, there's no word on a plan to actually do anything with this training, but it did kind of make me laugh to think about people one day getting on a plane and looking in the cockpit and seeing a canine just like co-piloting this plane and making the announcements, which would probably be just as clear as hearing a regular pilot's announcements over the intercom system. (laughs) I love that those uh, dogs on my co-pilot shirt actually make sense now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what the whole point is. So I actually had a fact about a dog who pressed 911 to save a life, but this idea of dogs doing loop-de-loops and figure eights in the sky (laughs) is just so good that I, I think you have to take home the trophy. 
Oh, wow. Well, congratulations to Tristan's pup for uh, for really getting us through this episode. Let's hope this one actually publishes because uh, we think he's the first canine to have pulled off an, uh, a podcast recording, but I guess we'll see. Now, I know we've forgotten probably several terrific facts about the history of Dog First. So we love to hear those from you as, as we always do. You can email us part-time genius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. That all of our listeners could see this because it's a pretty adorable scene. Yeah, I mean, this little guy keeps putting his paws up on the soundboard and he's got... Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. But like this really focused look. It, it seems like he actually... <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. And Eve's Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. Oh, this is not even Tristan's dog? Did we, did we forget Jason? Okay, all right, well... This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.